Hello and welcome to the Glen Mary Ecumenical Commission podcast. The GEC exists to enhance understanding, reduce alienation, and foster reconciliation between Catholics and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal communities of Christianity. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm the Director of Ecumenism for Glen Mary Home Missioners. I'm joined today by Tracy Rhodes. Tracy is the author of Not All Who Wander Are Spiritually Lost, an ecumenist, and she has the unique gift of creating, curating, healthy and thoughtful dialogue online on the topic of Christian unity. So Tracy, thank you so much for jumping on the call today with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nathan. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and since it's an audio recording, any of our listeners will not be able to see, but Tracy's backdrop is lovely. Uh, you might be able to hear the birds singing and uh, the, the chimes blowing in the wind there. So um, it's a perfect setting for our conversation today. But just to get us going here, Tracy, can you just you know give us a little back background of yourself? Uh, where are you calling from? What got you interested in this uh, work of Christian unity and your own denominational background, maybe your faith story? Uh, take as much time as you like. Thank you. Um, I am actually calling in from Michigan. We live outside of Grand Rapids on, on a piece of land that is, is very peaceful. It's a good respite for us. I'm actually originally from Missouri, outside of Kansas City. And we, my husband and I have a daughter. She's actually at church camp this week. So they, it, things are so advanced these days. They have an app where I can go to regularly and see if there's any new pictures of her. So we've kind of gotten to watch what she's doing at camp and those kinds of things. So that's been exciting. And as far as my denominational background, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, attended church from the time I was a baby. And there's also a United Methodist piece in my background in that the church that was up the road from us, I grew up in rural Missouri as well, the Methodist church up the road from us was off somewhere we frequented. Um, we would go to different 4-H Sundays there. We would participate in their vacation Bible school. If they had soup suppers, we would go and participate. We had um, Chris, I remember Christmas plays, uh, etc. So certainly spent some time there as well. And when I moved to St. Louis, um, as St. Louis should be, I was introduced to many new Catholic things. And I remember touring uh, the cathedrals um, of St. Louis. I bought my first rosary in a gift shop there at the Nash, no, not the National Cathedral. Is it just called the St. Louis Cathedral? I think, um, beautiful, anyway. Um, and at the same time, I did start visiting other denominations when I was in St. Louis. And I like to say it was a, I had a very intentional reason for doing that. Like I was really examining my theology and deciding, you know, where, where I was going to land with things. But in actuality, I was visiting churches based on what had a strong singles group. <laughs> I was single at the time. And so I ended up attending regularly a Presbyterian church 
I did not ever join because I wouldn't have even known how. I knew how to do it in the Southern Baptist way, but um, did not know how to do that as a Presbyterian. And when I got married, my husband and I moved up to Michigan. And I, I know now there are a few Southern Baptist churches, but they're far and few and far between. And so we started looking for a church and we landed in a non-denominational church that had been started by a gentleman who was a relatively new Christian, um, had, I felt like his sermons were oftentimes testimonies, not necessarily, like he didn't have a theology degree, you know, he was, he was more preaching from life, if you will. So we enjoyed our time there. And then when we moved near family here on the, um, Western side of Michigan, we ended up settling into a reformed church and attended there the first time, just kind of knowing what we wanted as far as we wanted a small to medium sized church in a small town and pretty casual. My husband prefers a casual worship setting. And so that's how we found our reformed church. And once I was there, I decided I should learn what it meant to be reformed and so have spent some time exploring that. When I started writing online, I started my blog, tracesoffaith.com in 2014. I began to look at my own journey through denominations, but also the touches I had had from the Catholic tradition and reading online and being in different writing communities, I met a few women who were Orthodox and I had to Google <laughs> what Orthodox was because I did not know. And this whole world opened up to me. Um, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for everything that I've learned from the different denominations. It's been interesting learning myself and raising my daughter at the same time, because she will know so much more about different Christian traditions than I did, and that's intentional. Um, and yeah, it's 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 been a wonderful journey. You know, led led me to meet um, people like you, Nathan, and many many more. It's been an exciting journey. So uh, what I'm hearing is uh, so Southern Baptist, Methodist, um, Reformed, uh, non-denominational and experiences with orthodox and catholics so obviously this is setting up the the, the uh, foundation for curiosity and uh, really what is the church and what is the difference or the experience of these other christians within their traditions um can you tell us a little bit about how uh these experiences really flowed from uh into your blog and then into into your book mm -hmm. When I started writing in 2014, I picked the name Traces of Faith just as a spinoff of my name. I knew I would be writing about Christianity and probably some about um, at least the local church. And that was 2014. My first service that I visited, I'll say, was Ash Wednesday in 2015. I had read a book that mentioned Ash Wednesday and again, knew nothing about it. And I went to my local church and it actually became the introduction um, for the 
for what would be the book. It was originally a blog post. And that that service was so beautiful. Ash Wednesday still my favorite service out of everything um, that I that I have visited and tried among Christians. And it surprised me that I could feel so comfortable in a setting that was not my own. And so I, I wrote about that. And those posts were the most well-received by my readers. And they were by far the ones I felt most passionate about writing. And so after that, uh, the, the list just grew. I've attended Stations of the Cross services. I, there's actually a, a nature center of sorts in northern Michigan called Cross. I think it's Cross in the Woods or Cross of the Woods. Cross in the Woods, I think. And they have a walkthrough, Stations of the Cross, that is always in place. And when I discovered that one summer when we were camping, I was so excited because I actually knew kind of what we were talking about. I accidentally attended a veneration of the cross service. That story is in the book. Uh, thought I was going to a Stations of the Cross and got my calendar days and times mixed up. Uh, Easter Vigil uh, is one of my most recent um, things, things that I visited. So, and across the board um, tradition, uh, Christian traditions, um, I've attended a silence, unprogrammed service is what they call it with the Quakers, uh, took wine for communion for the first time with the Lutherans, um, the list goes on. Yeah, it's, I'm always excited to find a new, uh, not just a new church to visit, but also a, a new service that maybe I haven't participated in before. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, your experience with this Ash Wednesday service, was this a Episcopalian? Was this a Catholic community? What, what? It was Catholic. Yep, it was Catholic. Mm -hmm. You've entered into these different uh, acts of piety and, and liturgy and engaging these different Christians and different Christian traditions. Just from your own, your own experience, how have you seen yourself grow uh, as a place of discipleship or evangelization, different conversions that maybe have happened within your own heart? through these, uh, opening yourself up to these experiences? I think one of the biggest ways that I have grown is that I think often of the verse, and I, I don't know that it's exactly what Paul had in mind, but the verse that tells us that there's more than we can ask or imagine, right? That God will give us that. Um, and that is how I feel about my Christian experiences. I grew up thinking that there was one right way to be a Christian. And if I studied my Bible hard enough, I would find that right way and I would walk in that right way. And it was probably Southern Baptist. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. I don't know that that came from sermons or from the pulpit necessarily. It's, it was just ingrained in me along the way somewhere. And at the same time that I was writing and visiting these churches and having these outward experiences, I began leading a group, 
of people who read through the Bible chronologically each year. We do that on Facebook. There's about 500 of us now, I think. Not not all read every day, but they, they follow along and see the posts. And I've done that for about eight years and diving into scripture that much along with discovering these new denominations really made me realize that I can't be 100% right <laughs> and neither can anyone else. Um, and then I, I had these super interesting conversations about things like church tradition and the, the place that we have in that. Again, a whole new conversation for me. Um, I learn new things about church history. I learn new things about canon. And you ask how it forms me. In my mind, I just see like the dam breaking <laughs> and just this flood of Christianity washing over me. And Jesus is in every bit of it. I cannot express how much deeper and stronger my faith has become because I have gotten to know my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's lovely. And one of the, uh, as you're talking, one of the um, Vatican documents, um, so within the Catholic Church, Vatican II is obviously very influential for our thinking now. And uh, the decree on ecumenism, and also you see this within the Constitution on the Church, the Magentium. The decree on ecumenism, I believe, points out that the Lord has not failed to use um, other Christians outside of the Catholic Church to bring about the salvation of the world. And, you know, that's very much kind of like that that opening, that dam breaking, as you described there in that analogy. And that I'm sure it opens up a sense of wonder and curiosity um, as you begin to engage in these ecumenical relationships and um, you, you mentioned uh, so much throughout your book, or you don't mention, but you, you have it throughout your book, is that um, the way you've aligned your chapters are such that you'll have where you're, you are speaking, and then you have testimonies throughout that. Was that, um, was that coming from a desire to, that this relationship of experiencing Jesus and other traditions is something that is uh, testimonial in some way? Was that something that you really wanted to emphasize for your readers? I think that's pretty perceptive. Um, it, that idea was not in the original proposal. And as we, as I secured an agent, and then as we looked in different places with publishers, it, that idea came along somewhere. And it makes, especially looking back, it makes so much sense to me. I, I've listened to a couple of your podcast interviews before coming on today. And so often the people who are talking about ecumenical things are councils and people with their doctorate in theology and, and they're a part of these grand committees. I am a lay person, like that's it. You know, I, I do love to study my Bible. I love to teach scripture, but I'm no expert and I, that has pros and cons to it. Um, I, I'll give you an example. The other day, so I ask a lot of questions on Twitter. Twitter is where I spend a lot of my time online. And the other day, 
someone asked me to ask this question. Okay. So the question was, if Paul had attended the Council of Nicaea, would he have agreed to his books being placed in the canon? So I asked the question. I just, I'm the messenger, right? I just post the question. And immediately, like three individuals who are smarter than me are like, no, it was the Council of Trent that decided the canon. I'm like, okay, then let's back, you know? And I, I say that to point out the fact that I think being a regular person in the church who's kind of having these grassroots conversations, if you will, is helpful. I think people um, will maybe think through things and be presented with things that they they aren't going, you know, they're not going to read the, the page after page that some council, you know, that being said, um, it's all good work, you know, and so whenever I went to write the book, I felt pretty strongly that it made sense for me to hear from these other traditions rather than just talk about them. Sure. No, that's great. I really like that. And ecumenism, um, as I've, I've been speaking to some other people about this, in fact, I uh, did an interview with uh, the director for ecumenism with Archdiocese of Chicago recently. And his big focus is really on uh, ecumenism within the family and mm. how, um, what he calls interchurch relationships. Might be a model for ecumenism for all of us. And uh, what it shows is uh, ecumenism, you know, it, it's a, it's a funny sounding word that people don't normally say, maybe say Christian unity, but ecumenism, the work of Christian unity, it's not really a specialized field. Um, it, some people make it a specialized field and there's people like myself and, and this other gentleman who, who work in it in a, a rather technical way, but people experience it in a non-specialized way, in a very intimate way with their friends and, and within their families sometimes. And as um, more and more opportunities for communications become uh, opened up to us, which I think your ministry is a, a wonderful example of, we begin to have these types of ecumenical experiences that, um, you know, we 20 years ago maybe didn't even have a framework for. And so as you've really, and just seeing your work online, I'm so impressed by it because I cannot do that. I, I don't know how you are able to curate such a healthy dialogue with people. Um, how have you seen these online mediums? As it seems to be a big focus of your ministry, included with the book. But how do, how do you uh, maintain an openness to dialogue and maintain an openness to really that ecumenical spirit within the digital space? Honestly, I credit the spirit <laughs> to, to a large degree. Um, I, people will joke. I, I don't know if you have ever um, studied the Enneagram, but I am an Enneagram nine. So peacemaker through and through. Um, and I've learned like ever, not so much anymore because most people that I have conversations with kind of know the approach that I'm going to take. I, I don't argue. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it, if we were face to face, the depth of our conversation could go so much deeper. But when you're on Twitter, you have what, 280 characters? 
Um, and I think, I hold things, I hold things loosely now. Um, not everything. I mean, there, there's our essentials, right? There are our um, strong foundations. But I think most Christians have the same strong foundations, you know, and so we build from there. Um, I think a lot of it too is that I tend to ask more questions than I make statements. And so, when again if you were in real life seated across the table from a person and you honestly ask them a question no matter what it even if it was a sensitive topic if you honestly ask them a question and they could tell that you wanted the answer not not just so you could fight about it but because you were truly curious that doesn't get shut down really um and i think I know people want to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, one of one of the things that I'm fascinated by, do a lot of reading on, is the creation of the biblical canon. And growing up, I did not know the Apocrypha existed. I sound like a bad Christian. <laughs> I was just an uninformed Christian. Um, I did not know the Apocrypha existed. And so through my, through my readings, through my writings, and actually through my local pastor, he suggested that I might be interested in reading those. And so last summer, I read them for the first time uh, with, with a small group on Twitter, maybe six of us. And we would have private conversations about it. And a couple... Some of it, I was like, oh, this is getting kind of boring. Some of it, I was like, oh, very intriguing story. But the two things that really stuck out to me were, number one, my whole life, I've always been told that Esther is the book who doesn't mention God by name. Always. And if you read the apocryphal books, there's a couple of chapters that are additional um, chapters in Esther. And right away... Esther and Mordecai pray, dear God, and say a prayer to God. So that's not true, right? And so then I will, now I'll read books about women in, or individuals in the Bible, Esther. And then I'm thinking too, I read a book about the woman at the well. And these people have studied this individual character in the Bible for months in order to write a book, a whole book about them. And the book I just finished on Esther kept saying, it doesn't mention God by name. And I was like, how can you study it for eight months and not even look at the apocryphal books that are additionally mentioning Esther? So that... And then the second one that really got me as I read through the apocryphal books was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sing a song while they're in the fire. There's a song of praise. And I'm like, Veggie Tales should have been all over that. Such a missed opportunity. So yeah, I and I, I say all of that kind of as an example of holding it loosely. I am not... A, highly educated 
Christian woman. And so I, I don't know what to do with canon. I can find an article on, you know, why it absolutely should be in there. I'm kind of mad at Luther because he took it out. I mean, I, I catch all these bits and pieces. Can we at least read it? Can we at least acknowledge that, you know, that the Orthodox and Catholic do? Um, so that's what I push back against. And, and I probably, I probably lean a little more towards giving the evangelicals a hard time because that's the world I came from. And I have every now and then on Twitter, I'm probably rambling now, but every now and then on Twitter, I will ask what church tradition people think I belong to. Mm. And boy, they don't, they don't usually know. Um, I'm often labeled Catholic. Uh, the Orthodox have invited me over and um, every now and then, usually the people who are reformed know I'm reformed because right, they, that locked in because that's what they are. So yeah, it's, and again, it's not that I don't take the things seriously that need to be taken seriously. It's just that I, I find, and I'm sure you do in your work as well, we have common ground that we can build from. And, and I try to find that um, and enjoy learning along the way. What's interesting and very striking to me about your comment about uh, this idea of what, what letters and books of the Bible go into the Bible and make up the Bible. And uh, some people do spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, what is the history of that? What was um, someone like uh, Jerome's thoughts towards that? What was Luther's thoughts towards that? And what, how did Nicaea play within that and Council of Trent as well? But uh, what I hear you saying is you receive these from a tradition and the tradition mm -hmm. that you grew up in. And it wasn't even until recently that you even thought you should maybe uh, consider where that, where that comes from. And that's actually a really good thing. That's how, that's the way our minds normally work. That's how we normally operate within Christian communities. Um, sometimes there's an, maybe an overemphasis on, you know, critical thinking, uh, but our minds don't normally work that way to where we criticize every single aspect. Instead, it comes from a place, and, and you mentioned this um, within your book too, that it really struck me, I highlighted all over. Um, the importance of uh, covenanting together and so you you know you grew up southern baptist and in some ways you covenanted with that tradition with that denomination um and uh i was wondering if maybe you could speak to the idea of uh, the importance especially as we are growing in our understanding of other christian people the importance of covenanting with a local congregation and also the importance of maybe uh, covenanting between as well. Yeah, I think, first of all, I owe my understanding of covenant theology to the reform tradition. One of the things that they have taught me that I think is so precious is the idea of making a big deal of God. And, and that's what covenant does, right? Um, God established these covenants throughout scripture and then um, we, we sit under a new covenant. And more and more, I think that includes all of us. Like I think I'm in covenant relationship with the Orthodox and with 
the Catholics, with the Mennonites, um, with the Episcopalians, you know, progressive, conservative. I, I, I reflect a lot, and I know I, I heard this in a couple of your interviews too, John 17, where Christ prayed that we would be one. I, I think that's a covenant that we are under. We don't have that all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I do think the local church is very important. Um, I, I get asked often and think myself too, why am I in this local church? Uh, there are things that, um, ha have hurt me. There are things that I've been annoyed by. There are things that, uh, I could critique, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're in a very human institution, the local church. But it's where I serve. It's where I teach. They have allowed me to grow and learn and come back and teach them some of what I've learned. It's a very, it's a very good space. Uh, I appreciate too, our associate pastor and I were talking one time and he knows my love of liturgy which my church is not. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, there are churches within our Reformed tradition who are very high church and who do observe the church calendar more. And I found that interesting as I thought about it because I think there's probably more Reformed churches that do that than there are Southern Baptists. And so then I think may maybe definitely God was part of this journey to get me somewhere that has a little bit more interest in church history, a little bit more attention to liturgy, um, it, kind of my, my medium place, if you will. And that's where I serve. And if you want to get to an even more microscopic level, I'm, I really think about, write about, reflect on the term church family and I, I believe it's what it should be. Um, I, we're not great at creating that. Um, it, as soon as I mention that on a social media page, I'll have the people who have, who have been hurt, who can't find that. We, we don't do it perfectly, but I think it's God's perfect plan for the church. Um, and if you have a church family, then in my immediate family, I have these individuals that I attend church with locally. And then I have aunts and I have uncles and I have cousins and I have, uh, I love to tell my Sunday school kids, great, 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 grandpas like Augustine, <laughs> right? And, and looking at that thread, um, that's where I see the covenant. Uh, now in my church, because, because we are reformed and because my pastor um, is, is so keen on covenant theology, we do have covenant membership. And you actually you know, attend classes learning what that means and you sign a, a membership saying that you are in covenant now with this congregation. And I, I want and partly because I was younger, but when I joined this church, as opposed to when I joined the Southern Baptist churches I was a part of, that was deeply meaningful to me. And I um, understood 
that concept of covenant and entered into that. Now, as I wrote towards the end of the book, my local church isn't enough for me. Um, no churches. Like every now and then I'll play this game where I'm like, okay, wh where could I go? And that would be like it, right? I, I often, and I don't, um, I don't necessarily understand what they mean by it, but a lot of times on social media, someone will say, you know, I joined the Catholic church this Sunday. Then there's a ton of people that respond, welcome home. And I'm like, home? What? What's, I don't know what that means. Um, I, I don't know that I'm going to find a ideal home where all my questions are answered and I fit perfectly. But I don't know that a lot of us are. And I think that's what I found interesting. I used to think that was just a handful of us that were like, yeah, I don't know, you know, I, I kind of like this and I kind of like that. And so what I try to do instead is learn as much as I can about Jesus from all of the traditions. And knowing that you are um, a convert to Catholicism, I've learned so much from Catholicism, deep, deep respect um, and, and a marvelous path through history. So I, I hope I always come across respectful of any of the, you know, um, I, I just have never felt called out of the covenant that I'm a part of now, you know, right here, right here in my local church. Yeah, and it's interesting how the language might play in some of those ways, like, you know, welcome home kind of idea. And I'm sure that's coming from a good place when somebody says that, but you know, what does that, what does that sound like to somebody who um, is a faithful Christian person? As uh, obviously Vatican documents will point out those exist. And um, to hear that they aren't home, um, I think there uh, needs to be a recognition that yes, there is a separation there between communities. Uh, you don't wanna forget that because then we won't go through the hard work of, of reconciliation in some ways. But there's also a sensitivity. Um, like for instance, uh, for myself, um, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't refer to myself as a convert to Catholicism. I always say I have entered into communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, I didn't hit the reset button when I became Catholic. It's just continued to grow and I think that is um, what you point out too, in regards to, um, you know, is the idea that you enter into a Christian community to have all your questions answered. Um, that makes your ecclesiology, so your understanding of what the church is, more um, a question and answer document rather than an encounter with Jesus as his body, you know? And um, you mentioned this within your book too, is that. Uh, as you're describing the, the, the need to feel a sense of family when you are within a new, in that specific topic in the book you're mentioning, going to new communities, new churches, um, you need to have that sense of, of family, but you also need a sense that you are encountering Jesus in this time. And I was curious if you could maybe spell that out a little bit more for us. Is that coming from a place of like a, a a deep sacramental imagination of Jesus's transcendence meeting us here now? Is it something that's very deep inside your own heart that you feel moved in your spirit, that God's spirit is there? What Can you maybe talk a little bit more on that? 
you put it so interesting. I, now I'm like, what did I even mean by that? <laughs> um, I, I think I would say I pretty easily interchange Holy Spirit and Jesus. And especially in this situation, I do think it's very spirit driven. Um, and I think it has so much to do with where my heart is, where anyone's heart is. I have so many people, they, they say one of two things. Number one, I could never go visit churches like you do. And number two, I sure would if I could take somebody with me. They don't want to do it alone. And so I think getting past that and realizing that there were um, just just these moments of 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 an intimacy with Jesus that I experienced there. Sometimes it happens the minute that I walk into the the building, the sanctuary. Um, it, I, you know, when I, when I see the Orthodox icons and I see the intimacy that, that they have with those, that, that's a Jesus encounter for sure. Um, and so again, and every time there's these moments, I think that's why, um, you know, that's, these are easy, easy to write about when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> because there's all of these uh, encounters between people and encounters where I feel like the spirit nodded affirmatively at what, what I was there to do, which was worship. And so that's what I mean by encounter Jesus. That's a wonderful insight. So thank you for sharing that. And maybe just to, to end our time, if you could share just from your own your own heart, your own desires. What what are your desires for Christian unity moving forward? It's a great question. I think it continues to morph a little. When I first started writing, I was I was like, let's just throw us all in one one hat. Let's do away with it. You know, let's solve all the problems from the last two thousand years of Christianity. Um, and I don't know that we're going to do that this side of glory. I also don't know that we're going to do it in glory. There's a, there's a part of me as I have explored, and I could, I often say it would be fascinating to do a dual degree of theology and sociology. And what I mean by that is are there people who are more Pentecostal in nature? They, they love to worship that way. Um, you will notice pretty quickly in my writing, I, I lean high church. Um, I love the Orthodox. I love the Catholics. I love um, a high church Anglican service. I, I feel still a little bit out of place, but super intrigued and comfortable there at the same time. A Pentecostal service, um, the, the Quaker service, the, which I took my daughter to, by the way, she was 11. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know, mom, I probably, probably won't do that with you again. Um, maybe those exist because we're different, you know, and maybe our life circumstances meet up better with certain styles. Um, now saying that, 
I have been to a big variety of Catholic churches, for example. Um, and so I think within our traditions, we try to make space for that as well to a certain degree. But big picture, what do I think church unity looks like? I think it's more about the posture we take to one another. Um, I, I will still every now and then have somebody, yeah, here's my classic example I use often when I was part of when you write a blog post part of what you do is go over to Pinterest and you share it to different community boards and that way people on Pinterest can search and find your writing and I one day I was searching around trying to find you know certain different boards to put my articles on and there was one that was, I don't remember the exact name of it, Christian bloggers, let's say Christian blog, bloggers 2020, I don't know. And in the description of the community board, it said, all Christian posts welcome, no Catholic posts. And I was like, well, you don't get mine either then, right? And I think that's what we're going for. Um, what do we, again, what do we agree on? What's the foundation? Can we move forward embracing that? And I, I give a lot of thought to it, how we can raise the next generation, understanding that better. Um, I, I know where I came from and, and I know even in the Southern Baptist tradition now it's better. Um, I, you know, I, I come across individuals all the time that um, use the Book of Common Prayer, and they're attempting to learn more about the church calendar. And so I think all of that kind of um, pushes us together more. Um, and that's what I think unity is going to look like. Yeah, I love that. Such a great great image is that emphasis on posture and that that is both what will help us to move forward into unity and also is what the expression of unity can look like mm -hmm. and uh yeah within the catholic church it's um it's it's even interesting to see i, I think some estimates there's 20 million charismatic or pentecostal catholics yeah speaking in tongues in the mass and that, that might be unfamiliar to some or have not done that yet. That would be super interesting. Yeah. 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 And, and I do think, um, Catholics are one of the traditions that allow for that space. Well, um, be, because I don't, I don't know that a more conservative Southern Baptist, um, denomination, for example, would be as willing to to go too far outside of the lines, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Catholics do a good job of that. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> well, Tracy, th thank you so much for spending this time uh, with me today and to hear your story and your desire for Christian unity and and also how you go about doing it. And, you know, uh, it's it's very uh, it's a, a very much a unique gift to be able to have that imagination on the ground to be able to put that out into a public forum 
and to be able to curate that in a way that keeps that posture of humility, of unity, and of listening. And so I think I've learned so much from speaking to you in this time and and, uh, prior times. And so I wanted to thank you for that gift and thank you for, for joining us today. You're welcome. And I appreciate it very much. Yeah, it's been my pleasure.